years ago in another church, in a land far away, in another church, <clears throat> I was part of a team, just like, actually just like this, I was part of a team that co-led a Sunday school class, and at the time we were going through the book of Acts, and so our process was the group would meet on a Saturday morning, we'd go over the text, and one of us would be chosen to teach that the following Sunday, and so Saturday mornings were this great time of fellowship and study around the Word with other leaders in the church. And then this, the lesson itself would follow that next week. Well, uh, one Saturday, one of our number kind of dropped his head a little bit and he said, hey guys, I'm going to have to bow out of the teaching group. And, and I didn't think anything more was going on, you know. So I just quipped, well, I hope it's nothing serious. I hope it's not fatal. And I hope it's not. And then I said the name of another church. It was a church to which many in our church had migrated to over the years. And my brother and friend, he gets this grin on his face and he shakes his head. Yes, it's serious. Yes, it's fatal. Yes, he and his family are relocating to another church. <laughs> when he started out, I thought nothing serious was going on. Everything's cool. It was worse than I thought. You know, this was not a bad thing inherently, but we were losing a good brother in his fellowship and his teaching with us. So the situation was worse than I thought going in. Have you guys ever gone to the barber shop and you've, you've sat in that chair and you've wondered how you're going to come out? <clears throat> like, have you ever had the experience when I was a young guy and I wanted my hair a particular way and I said, please do this and don't do that? And the first crop of the shears, she did exactly what I asked her not to do. You know, it was worse than I thought. Or have you ever gone to the dentist? You know, it's maybe like me, it's your once every three to five year cleaning and checkup. And you know, your expectation is maybe I'll have a cavity or two, you know, and the dentist, no, it's four and you need to be treated right now. It's worse than you thought. It's worse than we think. Oftentimes that's the case. Sometimes we are like the ostriches. We're burying our head in the sands, hoping life, our situation is better than it really is. The message this morning, guys, is simple and it's this. Because of sin, and this is true for folks who don't know Christ, and it's true for Christians as well. Because of sin, life is often worse than we would have thought it would be or could be. If we die without Christ, that becomes an eternal reality, worse than we could have thought it would be. But also for Christians, sometimes we find ourselves in a lifestyle that is not what we thought we were signing up for. We, we don't have the quality of life we thought we would. Life has been worse for us as a Christian than we thought it could be. That's one thing. And then the flip side is, and potentially because of the truth of the Gospel, the truth is that life can be so much better both here and now and certainly in eternity than we would have hoped for. So some things really are worse than we thought, but other things are gloriously and gladly much better than we could have hoped for. Some of the things I'm sharing this morning will touch highlights from last week. So if you hear a highlight from last week, don't tune out, okay? Uh, the other thing is I'm using some terminology to keep things simple. Sin and sinners and saints. It's not the terminology perhaps most of us use regularly, but that's where for simplicity's sake this morning... I'll rest. So, hope you have a study sheet. We'll be around the Scriptures a little bit. I, there's not a single text that you'll go to, though we'll look at some here as we go along. So, the first thing is, 
On your study sheet, point one is called the sinner's doom. And we need to set the stage, don't we, for the gospel? You know, gospel means good news. And the truth is, for many of us, there's no context for the gospel. There's no context for good news because there's no perception of bad news. But did you know from God's point of view, did you know you and I are not nice people? Do you know for many of us, our highest aspiration is to be a nice person, is to be thought a nice person from others. Isn't that nice? Isn't that a nice thought? But you know, we're not nice people. Biblically, we're not nice people. We don't have good hearts. Have you heard this maybe, maybe ad nauseum? You'll hear somebody do something that's just absolutely wrong. Everybody knows it. And then someone defending that person will say, but you know, their, their heart's really good, but they really have a good heart. To which God says, no, they don't. You know, biblically, our hearts are desperately wicked. So fully wicked, God says, we don't even know sometimes what we're about, why we're doing the things we do. God isn't cleaning us up. God is, in fact, the good news of the Gospel is that God has actually condemned us. Wow, how, how is that good news? But we'll get there. So sin is far worse than we think. And if we don't have a context for the good news, guys, the Gospel just falls on deaf ears. Sin is, is worse, far, far worse than we thought. If I start my life here, I'm born to my parents, I live whatever a nice life looks like, or maybe a, a tough life because of sin, because of the effects of sin in the world, in my own life. And then it goes from worse to worser because then I go from my experiences of sin in this life to eternity separated from God. And, and all I've got is my sinful disposition and myself. That would be even worse. Can you imagine if you go to the doctor and you think you've got a little cold and the doctor says you don't have a cold, you have terminal lung cancer. Well, we have spiritually, we have terminal lung cancer. But sometimes we kid ourselves, it's just a cold. I've just got a little cold. I'm a little sick. No, the doctor says you're dying. Or this strikes close down for some, not meaning anybody here, but have you ever... You'd be the person that says, I've got this funny freckle on my arm, this dark funny freckle that's growing. And I go into the doctor and he says, no, you have melanoma and it's past treatment. You don't have a funny freckle. You're going to die from this thing that you think is a minor little deal. No, it's far, far worse than you thought. Listen to this. And if you do have a Bible, you can open to Romans 6, 7, and 8 because that's uh, where we'll park as much as any place this morning. In Romans 7, there's a statement from the Apostle Paul that, that should be helpful for us putting the big picture in perspective, which is the bad news. The front end of the Gospel, the bad news. Paul's looking at himself, and we'll look at Romans 7 again in a little bit, but Paul's looking at himself, his own experience, and he's making a statement from God for our benefit that tells us what God thinks of us. And it's Romans 7, verse 18. Paul says this, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Nothing good dwells in me, Paul says. And he qualifies it, my flesh. Now when he says flesh here in this context, he's saying his old sinful human nature he received by birth from his parents who received it from their parents all the way back to our first parents, Adam and Eve. So Paul says, when I look at myself, and remember, he's a Christian writing this. He's the apostle of apostles. If there's a righteous guy walking on the earth in his day, it's the apostle Paul. 
But he says, of the human nature, the human condition he inherited from his parents, he says, when I look at that, when God comments on my human condition, he says there's no good thing there. Uh, Depending on your translation, good does not dwell in my old sinful disposition. It's not that we're a little corrupt. We are fully corrupt, God says. If you... If you say that to people today, there's no good in you, it's like you got to be kidding. I'm a pretty good person. In fact, if you do this informally and you say to people, they could be the worst person you know in the world. Are you a pretty good person? Yeah, I'm a pretty good person. That's our ideal of ourselves, isn't it? I'm a pretty good person. What does that look like? Well, God says we're not. Listen to this out of Isaiah 1. You can turn there if you want, but you don't need to. That condition, Paul says, was true of him. That's true for us, too. It's true for all of us. It's true for every person who's ever been born on this earth since Adam and Eve gave birth to their first children. Isaiah 1, God's talking to the nation of Israel. His covenant people. If there's righteous group on the earth, this is it. But listen to how he describes them, starting at verse 4. He says, "Ah, sinful nation, a people laden or burdened down with iniquity, Offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Cut off from God. Not in fellowship. Not in relation. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? Don't stay there, he says. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. If God was looking at Israel morally, if they were what they should have been, they would have been this healthy physical specimen, right? But God looks at Israel morally and He says, you're like a person who's covered in festering sores. You're diseased. You're not healthy. You're not fit. We're all sick with our own sin, and the penalty of sin is always death. You know, it's possible to live life here on the earth and say I'm having a pretty good time of it. So that if I say the the fruit of sin is always death, sometimes we might feel like we're sinning, we're living life on our own terms, but there's a pleasure in it. And, And at one level that's true, but... If we're cut off from God, who's the source of all life and ultimately of all pleasure, then the truth is we're, we're experiencing death now because God is life. We're experiencing death now. Even as we live, we get death. So think through just a few of what things, what this might look like. While we can experience variations of pleasure living in sin, those points of pleasure occur in a larger context of despair, hopelessness, alienation, pride, Lust, we could extend the list here all day. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 1.14, he said there's a sense of futility in all of life. So if I'm a sinner cut off from the life of God, I can experience pleasure, but even in the midst of that pleasure, there's a sense of futility because I'm cut off from my Maker, my author, the author of my life. Augustine said our hearts are restless till they find their rest in Thee. And Pascal said, there is within each man a a God-shaped vacuum apart from which we don't have a sense of being filled up apart from that knowledge of God in Christ. 
So it doesn't matter how lofty our goals are, how acute our pleasures are, in the midst of life here, life as good as we can live it on our own, there's still a sense of futility and death. There's death in our living. There's frustration because even in our highest moments, I can remember days as a high school athlete, and I would go from the roar of thousands of fans to home. And I would weep on the stairs of my parents' home because I was so empty. So I've got this pinnacle moment. You've won the big game. Everybody was there cheering you. And I go home and I am desperately lonely. And nobody knows it. But, but I do. In the midst of my success, I've got a failure inside I can't cover up. We could be in the midst of family and friends and still feel alone, right? Nobody here knows me. They don't know what's going on. There's the knowledge that our compulsive lusts and pride are wrong but we have no real ability to get past them. So, apart from Christ, it's worse than we thought. There's death in our living, and then when we die, there's death in death, isn't there? There's what the Scriptures call the second death. Uh, Revelation 20, verses 10-15 through 15 has got to be one of the most profoundly serious passages in all the Bible. And it's the end of earth history. It's the end of history for every human ever born if they haven't already risen to see Christ. Revelation 20 is called the great white throne judgment of Jesus Christ. And basically the earth is over. And everyone who's ever died apart from Christ stands before Jesus on the great white throne. And the text says that He brings out books. And this is for two reasons. He brings out the book of life to show each person who stands individually before His throne of judgment that their name is not in the book of life. They've never accepted the gift of salvation offered them in Christ. Their name is not in the book of life. And also says it records other books, the books of their deeds, and they are judged by the deeds recorded of their life in that book. And friends, they're all going to one place. And only one place. They're going to what Scripture calls the second death the lake of fire that burns forever and ever. So my best case scenario is I experience death in life, and apart from Christ, I experience death, the second death, in death, standing before Jesus and being condemned to righteous, God's righteous judgment forever. Think about this just so that you're suitably depressed. And if you don't know Christ, <clears throat> if you don't know Christ, this is what you want to avoid. If you do know Christ, thinking of what Kent mentioned during announcements, this should help us be serious about the Gospel, right? If we, would we want somebody else to experience eternity apart from the goodness of God? I don't want that for anyone. But it's going to happen to some. But that should motivate me for the Gospel. Related to the second death, it's God's perfect punishment that is proportionate to our sin. Luke 12, 47 and 48, Jesus says, some people in that eternal punishment will experience greater or lesser degrees of punishment because God is just and He's fair in the best and highest sense. And He punishes, if this makes sense, you're in the lake of fire forever, but there's still greater or lesser degrees of punishment because God is just. An Adolf Hitler in hell gets a more severe punishment than a happy pagan who's semi-moral. That's what Jesus says here. There's no hope and there's no end. Mark 9.48, their worm doesn't die. Hell doesn't end. Some people comfort themselves or they comfort themselves for the sake of others that hell 
is annihilation. That's simply not, not in the Scripture. It doesn't end. So, hell is stripped both of the ability to enjoy the goodness of God, lacking any opportunity to do so forever in the lake of fire, God's judgment, death in death. The end of the sinner is far worse than we sinners can realize. Imagine this. Imagine that we're asleep at night and we have the most awful, terrifying nightmare we could think of. And then we wake up and we find that reality is worse than our most awful dream. That, that gets us to start thinking about hell in the right way. It's far worse than anything we can imagine. Death is more deadly and more intense longer in duration than our minds can take in. So sin's an issue for sinners, right? Because if I stand before Jesus at that great white throne and I answer for my own sins, there is nothing but death in all its experience multiplied over and over again. That's all I've got. Worse than we could have thought. There's also, though, guys, for saints, you know, if you're a Christian, if you've believed in Jesus as your Savior, you're a Christian. Christians are followers of Jesus, but there's another word that's used of Christians routinely in the New Testament, and that's saints or holy ones. As a young Christian, I, I stood with my mom in our living room and I informed her that I was a saint. And as a good Roman Catholic, she found that hard to believe. For sure. <clears throat> but in the language of the New Testament, excuse me guys, I am <clears throat> hacking all over the place this morning. My allergies are killing me. In the words of the New Testament, to be in Christ means to share who and what Christ is. So we say that sinners reproduce sinners. I can only give my girls a sinful human disposition. That's all I can give them because that's what I am. It takes a spiritual rebirth for them to become something more and better. And so as those who've trusted Christ... The Scripture says that now we are in Christ, that just as surely as our life originally came from Adam, our spiritual rebirth, that new life, comes from Christ. So we're in Christ. So it's true of Christ. It's true of us. So we're righteous and we're holy. That's our position as believers in Christ. But the secret many of us know and don't talk about or don't talk about very loudly, thank you, or often, is that while we know positionally, we know positionally God sees us in Christ. So I am righteous. I am holy. I am going to heaven. We know that, but what we aren't talking about or maybe aren't talking about very loudly is the fact that our life still pretty much looks like it did before Christ. That we still find ourselves locked in patterns of sin that we wish we didn't. Things like outbursts of anger, hurtful words, Pride, lusts, again, we could just keep multiplying the list, right? Back in Romans again, we're in chapter 7. When Paul develops his theology from chapter 1 where we're sinners up to chapter 3, we're all sinners. There's sanctification, there's redemption, there's atonement in Christ, chapter 3. Salvation is through faith, 4 and 5. You get to chapter 6, 7, and 8, and it's the experience of the believer that he's talking about. So in chapter 7, Paul describes a situation that most of us would say, he's reading my mail. That's me. I could have written this passage. 
So we'll park here for just a minute. This is Romans 7, starting at verse 15. Paul says, this is the Apostle Paul writing this, I don't understand my own actions. I don't do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Paul's a believer with a human nat- uh, excuse me, with a reborn nature that aspires to the things of God, but he's got a sinful disposition as we all do. And so this is the contrast between the two. He says, verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. If I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Yeah. Anybody else on that? Yeah. That's us. That's me. Verse 21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. In my new nature, I know God's Word is right. I aspire to these things and nobility. But, verse 23, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Verse 24, have you ever said this or felt it? When I read this, I thought, that's me. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? Because I'm looking at myself, I see God's law, yes, I, that's it, that's what I want, that's what I aspire to, but I look at myself, that's not the way I'm living. And I'm wretched and I'm miserable because I am a saint. But I'm living like a sinner. I've got that old life still going on in me. And I cry out, who can save me? Who can deliver me from this awful scenario I'm in? Now, it may be that we aren't acting out all the sins that we used to. Maybe our lives are cleaned up a little bit. But we find that our mind still craves them. I'm miserable because I crave my former sins. Or some of us are in this cycle. There's a particular temptation. And I eventually cave. And then I feel remorse. And I repent. And I do better for a while till I face the temptation again. And I cave. And then I feel remorse. It, it's the cycle. This is what Paul's saying in Romans 7, isn't it? And I have no real sense of victory because I keep falling and I just keep thinking there's no hope because I can't get out of this hole. Some of us have been able to put away sin in a significant degree, and that's good. But we still have this sense of, There ought to be more. I should have more peace or more joy. I'm not sinning the way I used to, but life still doesn't feel full. You know, Jesus made a promise in John 7 that those who would believe in Him would have the Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit would produce in us rivers of living water that would be so great we couldn't contain them. And we're wondering, like, Lord, I've got a trickle. I've tasted it. Where's the river? Where's the rest? Where's the beef? John Darby said this. He said the most miserable person on earth is not the sinner, but the carnal Christian. The person who may be able to still derive some pleasure in sins like they used to, but not to the degree. And now my conscience bugs me in ways it didn't used to. I'm spoiled for the world. I can't enjoy the world the way I used to. 
but neither am I walking with the Spirit adequate to enjoy the new life I've been called to. Darby says that person, the carnal Christian, the saint who's not living like a saint, is in fact the most miserable person in the world. Like a sailor lost on a sea that has no end, you can't get back. The winds won't carry you back to your point of origin. But nor can you see the line on the horizon that's your desired destination. I'm lost at sea. How do I get out of this scenario? Many of us feel worse than we thought we could because we know we're redeemed. We know we're made for something better, but we just can't seem to get there. That's some of us. Now, for others of us, it's not that we are more miserable than we thought possible. It's that we make others around us more miserable than they thought possible. Right? Yeah, yeah, there's some of us in here on that. Some of us have cleaned up our lives enough that we feel like we occupy a, a podium by which we can look down and we can help the rest of those mere mortals around us, right? And, you know, uh, we don't want to fall into the, the Pharisee role, do we? You know, because we say, I go to church on Sunday. I'm a pretty good person. It's like, really? You know, so when you read the Gospels, who does Jesus lambast? most severely it's religious people it's not sinners right it's people going to church on sunday who don't follow him don't know him they're just religious that's not what we're talking about listen to these words from paul tripp this is from his book whiter than snow he's a very insightful guy he says this sin lives in a costume that's why it's so hard to recognize life in a fallen world is like the ultimate masquerade party impatient yelling Where's the costume of zeal for truth? Craving for power and control, where's the mask of biblical leadership? The pride of always being right masquerades as love for biblical wisdom. I just want to free you from the error of your way. We are all very committed and gifted self-swindlers. We are all too skilled at looking at our own wrong and seeing good. We're all much better at seeing the sin, weakness, and failure of others than we are our own. Sin causes us not to hear or see ourselves with accuracy. We not only tend to be blind, but to compound matters, we also tend to be blind to our blindness. So for us, we who feel we've cleaned up our life a little bit, for we who are blind to our blindness and proud of our humility, righteous in our anger, we're making life more miserable for those around us than they thought possible. So, life can be worse than we thought as a sinner or as a saint. And it's because of the effects and impact of sin. So the sinners do have a hope. I'm going to be brief here. This is the Gospel, isn't it? When we're talking, what's the hope for sinners? This is the Gospel. So 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, you know, I told you of the first importance that Christ died for our sins. Peter, 1 Peter 3.18 says it this way, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. So the good news of the Gospel is all about what Jesus has done for us as our substitute. Listen to the way Isaiah predicted this would look. Now we look back and we read, we see the lens of the crucifixion and we read Isaiah 52 and 53 through that lens, but Isaiah was looking forward and listen to the way he talked about what Jesus did for the sinner, for us in our sin. He said, Surely, 
He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His stripes we are healed. The Gospel is all about Jesus suffering in my place. The Gospel is about Jesus taking on Himself on the cross the penalty due your sin and mine. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. So the hope for the sinner is the good news of the Gospel. And it's that someone else has borne the penalty due your sins and mine. And if I want to experience freedom from the penalty of my sin, all I have to do is embrace Jesus in His sin-bearing role for me. There's no work on this, by the way. There's some references in your study sheet, Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians. This is not about working something up. Salvation is a gift freely given by God, paid for by Jesus, freely accepted by us by faith. We don't work our way up to this. It's a gift received by faith. You remember we said to uh, Pascal had a thing called Pascal's Wager, and it was basically look at life like a, a bet or a gamble. What's the worst thing that could happen? Prepare for the worst thing, right? If I'm a sinner, the worst thing is hell forever. That's bad. That's very bad. But it could be much, much brighter because the least thing, if I'm a sinner and I weigh my options, death in life, death in death, or repent, give my life to God in Christ, accept forgiveness and choose to start living in a way that glorifies God. The least thing I get forever, longer than we can imagine, is joy and pleasure forevermore. That's the least thing. We talked last week about rewards. The thief on the cross, he said in his own words, died appropriately for the sins he'd committed. So here's a guy being crucified the most cruel way the world at that time could figure out to kill a person. He dies in agony and he wakes in ecstasy in paradise forever. That's the minimum the sinner gets by accepting the good news of the Gospel in Christ. Joy and pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16.11 Be like going to sleep on death row and waking up in the best resort hotel. Or if I'm drowning under an angry ocean wave and I wake up on a white sandy beach. That's the least the sinner gets for trusting Christ for salvation. Listen to the way Augustine wrote this. I love this out of his confessions. You know, and he had this turmoil. Augustine, he was a guy that was a total hedonist. You know, he'd given his life to pleasure. Life was all about pleasure. And he was wrestling with God. He knew he was convicted. He knew Christians. He knew the gospel. And he just, he, his battle was, can I, am I willing to give up my pleasures for sin for what I know to be the right thing to do. That was his battle. He says this, How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. This is his moment of conversion. You drove them from me, you who are the true sovereign joy. I gave up lesser joys for a greater joy. You drove them from me and took their place, you who are sweeter than all pleasure though not to flesh and blood, certainly not to our sinful disposition, God isn't. But to the regenerate, God is the sweetest pleasure imaginable. 
You who outshine all light, yet are hid deeper than any secret in our hearts. You who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men who see all honor in themselves. Again, not for the proud. O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. That was Augustine's experience of moving from death to life. He didn't lose joy. He gained joy. He didn't lose light. He gained light. So for the sinner who forsakes their rebellion, the least thing they get is joy and pleasure forevermore. Uh, Related to the saints' liberation, and I assume most of us in here this morning are saints, are the second category. That we've trusted Christ. We're in Christ. We have His righteousness. We know we're going to heaven forever. Paul says this, so what's the hope for saints who are living a life of quiet despair or not so quiet despair? Paul says this in Romans 8 too, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Do you not find that whether it's yourself or you're talking to someone else, it's kind of like trying to lose weight. I'm going to do better this time. You know, this time I'm going to do a little better. I'll work, work a little harder. About our sins, you know, I'm, I'm going to strive to be a better person. I'm going to work a little harder at whatever, whatever my habitual sin is. I'm gonna, this time I'm going to do better. This time I'm going to work harder. That's not the way we overcome sin. Paul says that as a Christian, we live under a superior law. And he calls it the law of the Spirit. If I'm a sinner, the truth of the Gospel I need to hear is this. Jesus died for my sins, in my place, took my penalty. But as a saint, I already know that's true. The truth of the Gospel that I need to be aware of is this. Not only did Jesus die for me on the cross, but I died with Christ on the cross as well. The saint needs to know that my old sinful disposition has no power anymore because it's already been included in Christ on the cross and its power is broken. Jesus died for me. That's the penalty of sin. I died with Jesus. That's power over sin. Christians don't have to live defeated lives like many of us do because we live under a new law, a superior power, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Paul says it this way in Romans 6. He's anticipating questions the Romans have. And and one of them is this, Paul, if God gives more grace when we sin, should we sin more so that God will dispense more grace? And so Paul says this, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Don't you know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? We've been buried with him through baptism into death. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. One who has died has been set free from sin. Friends, the secret for us as saints related to sin and its power and its effect is that we've already died with Christ. Our sinful nature has no power to compel us to sin today. And that it really is possible to live a life better than we hoped for right now experience peace and joy in ways we have never anticipated by simply grasping hold of this by faith. You know, we tell people, we tell sinners, we say receive by faith salvation, right? You don't work for it, you simply receive it. 
The same is true for saints related to freedom from sin. It's not working harder. It's not by being more determined. It's by receiving by faith the truth that the old Mike has been crucified and the new Mike doesn't have to live subject to the old Mike's influence and power. Unfortunately, most of us are living as if the crucified self is still sitting on the throne of our life calling the shots. And it's not necessary. You know, the funny thing is, when you... um, You know, we talk about uh, sin and temptation and you want to catch yourself at the first step off the path. When temptation comes up, what's my first step off? That's what I want to address. So if I'm tempted, whatever it might be, to tell a lie, to envy, to bitterness, to unforgiveness, to lust, whatever, wouldn't matter. When that temptation comes up, if I tell myself right off the bat, there's no real pleasure to be had in that. That's not a real option for me. I don't have to do that. I never have to go a step further. I can stay right there. I don't have to lose my peace and joy. Every one of us makes a decision to sin when we don't have to because we're advancing on the lie. One of the things we need to do as believers is renew our mind. You know, we, you can't act on the truth if you don't know what the truth is. And this gets back to, Am I reading my Bible? Am I starting each day with the truth of God's Word? Am I confronting the sins by the lies in my own mind so that I'm facing up to them with the truth? That's what we need. So for us as saints, the potential for us here and now is a life with more peace and more joy, more patience and more goodness than we might think imaginable. And we receive it the same way sinners receive forgiveness. We receive it through faith. We choose to believe the truth that I'm not who I was. I'm a new person. I have the power of the Spirit of Christ within me who enables me to live life big, not subject to sin and death. Some of us think that uh, holiness is like putting on a scratchy wool robe. You know, like the monks wear, make it scratchy so it's hurting me and I don't like it. But in fact, holiness, sanctification, living a life that honors Christ, it's like having clothes that are perfectly fit for you that allow you to do all the good things God ever intended. Or, you know, sometimes we think, because it's so different than what we've known or been used to, sometimes we think, if, I, if holiness is water, I might freeze. If I stick, stick my toe in that water of God's holiness, if I commit myself, maybe it's going to burn me, maybe it's going to freeze me. But really... It's like if it's really cold outside, if you guys have been outside in the winter and there's a spa between, you know, you're in the cabin and the spa's outside. I'm thinking of the Rocky Mountains here, sorry. The spa's outside. If I'm freezing outside and I slip into that hot water, it's, ah, oh, this is where I wanted to be. Well, that's what it's like to put on Christ's holiness practically. It's not itchy. It's not rubbing us the wrong way. It's not freezing us. It's not boiling us. It's just right. Just right. Sin is the thing, guys, sin is the thing. The, the great thing about sin is that God has done something about it. It's not that sin is good, but God's done something about sin. Do you know, if you tell yourself, I make mistakes now and again, instead of I sin, you'll keep making those mistakes. Do you know, if you see your present condition tied to your childhood, you'll never get over it because you can't go back and remake your childhood. 
Do you know if your inner child who's 37 years old now is still throwing a tantrum? There's not much to do with your inner child informed from your early days. If that's the way we treat sin, then we are going to find ourselves throughout life struggling, we'll do therapy, we'll take medications, we'll abuse sex, drugs, food, whatever. Because it's pain management. We aspire to something better, we're not there, so we manage our pain. The disappointment between those two points. But this is the great thing. If our problems are really sin, then God's done something about them. So if I'm a sinner, for the first time I say, Lord, I accept that forgiveness of sin in Jesus, I no longer pay the penalty of my sin. I have pleasures and joy in God's presence to look forward to forever. If I'm the saint embracing the truth that my sinful condition was dealt with in Jesus' death on the cross, I receive by faith the truth that the Spirit of Christ lives in me. I have the power of the Spirit. In my renewed mind, I can choose to live righteously and wholly. Life becomes better than I ever could have imagined. So really, the issue for us is, are we a little sick or are we dying? Because if we're dying, God has a solution for us. For a little sick, there's no hope. Sin produces worse fruit in our life in time and eternity than we could have thought possible. But because of what Jesus has done for us in the Gospel, His death, substitutionary death, His burial, His resurrection, His power today in us, in His Spirit, life now and certainly life in eternity is going to be far, far better than anything we could have hoped for. Father, would You help us to lay hold of the truth that You are everything we need And Father, that in Christ, we have the ultimate solution to our sin, either, Lord, in its penalty or in its power. Lord, would you help those today who don't know you to embrace Christ through faith? And Lord, would you help we who do know you to embrace again the truth that we are not who we were, that we are new creations in Christ Jesus, that we are subject to a new power that lifts us out of the pit of despair and enables us to fly with you holy lives, Lord, exalted lives to your glory. In Jesus' name.